Let's do this. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for opportunity to be together. Uh, thank you for opportunity to, to study your word and to uh, spend time kind of focusing in on um, the story of the Bible, uh, which is you, Jesus. And we pray that you would, uh, you would teach us this morning, make our hearts pliable, uh, moldable, uh, to be made more like you, so that God, not only do we think like you, but that God, we would live like you, act like you, um, and treat people like you, like you do. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a, a few years ago, uh, when I was moving here, kind of my first year here, about probably about five years ago, um, which, by the way, I still haven't gotten used to this outside just yet. Um, I don't think I ever will. Like, it was, like, beautiful yesterday, right? And today it was like, what happened? <laughs> this is totally, I don't know how you guys ever got used to this. This is my sixth year, and I still don't understand it. But anyway, I was reading this book to try to understand culture. Um, I moved here, if you don't know my story, I moved here from Los Angeles, like inner city Los Angeles to Brownsburg, Indiana. It's a little bit different culture, if you didn't know that. And um, so I read, read a book uh, called uh, American Nations uh, by a guy named Colin Woodard. I would uh, highly encourage you. It was a very interesting read. Um, and what it is is a cultural study of North America and how it's divided into 11, he calls it rival regional cultures. 11 different cultures make up kind of North America. And, um, and I read to kind of study up on Indiana, uh, try to understand kind of the culture I was getting into here and how it's different, how people think differently, how the values are different, right, and understand those things. Maybe you can see, I think on the, I think we have a picture, yeah. So that's kind of how it was broken up from a cultural study. Uh, don't worry, no quiz coming later. I know it's small print up there for you. But it kind of gives you the, the 11 different portions of kind of how they break it up. And as you can see, it's not necessarily by state, but by kind of region. So I learned, for example, Indiana, this is interesting enough, is divided up into three of those different cultures, North Central and South, actually. So the state of Indiana is actually pretty diverse in its understanding or its cultural values. Um, the extremely north part of Indiana is referred to as, in this, in this uh, book, it's called Yankeedom. Um, it actually runs um, east-west from New England states all the way over to Minnesota. And you can see that kind of in that, that uh, darker blue shade there. Uh, it was originally, um, uh, was primarily English Puritans. Um, as well as uh, Scandinavians who are kind of were highly educated in that culture and sought to establish educational institutions when they first moved in. Uh, it, they, though the religious zeal has kind of waned over time, the, the culture's un, undying drive to improve the world is still there through education and big government. That's kind of like their big values in that, that culture. Um, the south central part of that, that light blue shade you see running across the middle of Indiana, um, sorry, the south central has to be the light red part, the bottom part, is referred to as the greater Appalachia uh, culture. Uh, again, runs east-west, dips down to the south, runs all the way from southern Pennsylvania all the way down, and you can see all the way down into Texas there. Uh, it was uh, primarily uh, inhabited by the Scottish and the Irish. It's kind of the ones who originally took up that land when they moved here, uh, primarily because the terrain was very similar to where, where they were from uh, over in uh, Scotland and Ireland. Uh, their values were a little different. Their values were, were personal sovereignty, and individual liberty, which is kind of why they moved into the space they did, so they could have more land, be away from people, not be too close, kind of that value system. Um, they tend to be more private in that way. The north central part, which is that light blue shade, uh, kind of closer to us here, is referred to as the Midlands culture. Uh, I'm going somewhere with this. Just hold on. This is not a total, um, I'm taking you back into school here for a minute. Uh, runs east-west from, you see there, from Pennsylvania all the way over to Kansas. And it was primarily uh, um, taken up by the English Puritans, um, not the English, sorry, the English um, Quakers, as well as Germans. That was kind of the, the culture that took up that, that space. And their values were hard work, family, and the middle class life, right? And that kind of fits more of our kind of where we are. 
um, primarily made up a lot large farming communities. They were also known to be very skeptical of any kind of government involvement, any kind of politics, and even politicians, pretty skeptical of that. Eh, it fits us pretty well, doesn't it? Um, did I hear an amen out there? I thought no. Um, so contrast all of that with where I was from, okay? So from out in L.A., um, I think I pronounced this right, and Eddie can, can correct me later, but I think it's El Norte, I think is how you say it, uh, culture. Uh, involves both um, that kind of light blue shade there out in the west. It goes all the way from northern Mexico into Texas and to southern California. And it was primarily inhabited by Spaniards. And, uh, and it was also um, had a lot of people from the Yankeedom culture move out there with the hopes of building what they thought would be a utopia, right? A kind of paradise, you know, the ultimate society was kind of the, the original goal of that. And their values were individual fulfillment, opportunism, and hedonism, right? The pursuit of pleasure, Pretty different than here, okay? Very different values. Um, and so a, a lot of their, uh, while here, kind of work and family were the big, uh, hard work and family were the big values. There it was more like individualism and almost like take it easy. Um, maybe taken back to an Eagle song there, right? Take it easy was kind of the cultural vibe or idea. As a matter of fact, I remember when I, when I lived out there, um, I'm a huge baseball fan, if you know this, Dodger fan, by the way, World Series champions, woohoo. And, um, and so when I was out there, we signed Joe Torre from the uh, New York Yankees to be the manager of the Dodgers. It was a big deal. And at that time, they were running all these State Farm commercials. I know right now, State Farm commercials are like, you know, Jake from State Farm. Well, they were different back then. And they were always, they had always Joe Torre in there. And there was Joe Torre living in New York, and then Joe Torre living in L.A. And New York was like, he was like stressed out, he was busy, he was rushing, he was in, you know, he was always having something to do that way. And then California, he's like driving on the coastline, sunglasses on, roof down, you know, <laughs> driving across. And just kind of getting that cultural vibe, it was very different. It's kind of very laid back type of culture. Probably the best summary of this kind of philosophy of life, of this kind of West Coast culture, uh, is a character uh, by the name of Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski. Uh, it's played by, uh, by Jeff Bridges in the film Big Lebowski. Uh, it's about a man who loves bowling. I can, I can go with that. I like bowling. Um, actually, looks like my bowling partner on Friday nights, Don, by the way. They're actually very similar. Um, whose only goal in life in the whole film was to take it easy. That was his goal. As a result of the film, I kid you not, there was a, a religion started up, a religion called Dudism, as you can see there, kind of strangely uh, pictured on top of the screen there. Um, it is uh, referred to as, uh, as the official church of the Latter-day Dude, and you can even be ordained as a dude, dude priest, actually, as part of that. Uh, and the founder said this, quote, the idea is this, life is short, complicated, nobody knows what to do about it, so don't do anything about it. Just take it easy, man. Stop worrying so much about whether you'll make it into the finals, kick back with some friends and some oat soda, don't know what that is, oh, and whether you roll strikes or gutters, do your best to be true to yourself. That's LA culture right there. <laughs> That's pretty much summarized pretty well. And as I thought about all those kind of different cultures, especially that West Coast one and that kind of take it easy culture, I thought about where we are in the book of Acts and what's happened so far. We're in chapter three, lots happened so far. But remember at this point now, there's 3,000 people have come to faith in Christ, like in one moment, right? It was a huge influx. And I think about how easy it would have been to be like, okay, we're done, right? We, we did our job. Like Jesus said, he's going to send the spirit and power is going to come on us and people are going to come to know him and boom, it happened. All right, let's, let's set up shop. Let's set up our building, right? Let's close our doors. I mean, we, we saw last week, Pastor Eddie preached, you know, it's like, hey, we're, we're going to take care of each other and we're going to, we're going to value the, the apostles teaching and we're going to break bread together and, and we're going to close our doors and we're good. It would have been very easy to do, right? Think about it. I mean, 3,000 was more than 120. It started off with, that's a pretty exponential growth right there. 
And so it had been easy to kind of be in that comfortable spot. Matter of fact, I know if you've read the rest of Acts, you understand things change. But right now where they are, they don't fear persecution. There's really nothing to be persecuted for. They haven't really done anything yet to, to be persecuted for. They don't really worry about money, because as we saw in the passage last week, they, they share money, they're sharing their resources together, they're taking care of each other. So hey, you know, take it easy, sit back, and we're good. We, we, we've done our job, we've completed the mission, we're done. And so it was tempting, right, to just settle. But remember back in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus told them that they would go to Jerusalem, which is where they are, but where else would they go? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And so they haven't even, they barely have even scratched the surface here. They're barely just getting started. There are, by the way, uh, a lot more chapters going on here in the book of Acts. We're gonna see the church actually does move out. They don't stay in Jerusalem, they move out of that. But if they would have settled, if they would have just set up shop, take it easy, get comfortable, maybe do their church activities, close the doors, take care of each other, and just you know, pay attention to the apostles' teaching, break bread, love one another, great, have been the end of Christianity, right? Not going forward. I was reminded we had a church planting meeting here um, in, uh, at our church we hosted uh, this past week, or two weeks ago now, and uh, one of the pastors was mentioning that I thought was interesting. He said, you know, just remember, guys, we're, we're always one generation away from, from seeing the gospel end. Just one generation of not taking the gospel and keep moving with it, of it ending. And so sadly, many churches and many Christians in general are perfectly content, and maybe that's you, right? Perfectly content just to, you know, I'll just do church, my church thing, <laughs> okay? I'll, I'll read my Bible, check. I'll pray, check. I'll attend some services, check. I might even serve, I'll grab some donuts, all right, bring them to church to give people, like, I'll give some money to, and I'll do all those things. I'm, I'm, I'm okay to check those lists, but that's about as far as I really want to go, and a lot of Christianity is like that. Not really any sense of mission, not really any sense of any of the importance of getting the gospel out, uh, but the disciples in Acts couldn't settle. They couldn't settle where they were, mainly because, remember, they had all been with Jesus. And they saw that he didn't settle, did he? <laughs> he didn't stop. He didn't quit, right? And he went all the way to the, matter of fact, to the end, until he got down on the cross, and it is finished, and then he rose from the grave, and he sent the entire, the entire followers of him out again in the book of Acts. They, they couldn't settle. They'd seen him do what he had done. He had gone into homes. He had hit the streets, as it were. He had hung out with people that the, the religious people of the day uh, were repulsed by. Jesus didn't take it easy. He kept pressing on. He kept going, and so must, so must we. And what we find here in Acts 3 is a, is a church on the move, right? A community on mission, just as we must be. We must take what we know and live and proclaim it to the world around us and become the mouth, hands, and feet of Jesus. So how do we do that? Right? What's the model of that? And here's the thing, all the you know, models out there of church growth, blah, 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 blah. Like, it's really simple. Matter of fact, it's very attainable by every single one of us and attainable by Parkside Bible Church. And it's right in this passage. And this is what it is, really simple, ready? We're gonna look at three things. We need to move our feet, <laughs> we need to open our eyes, we need to use our hands. That's pretty attainable, right? I mean, that's pretty, pretty attainable stuff, but it's exactly what the church does. Let's look at those. Number one, move our feet. Verse one, Peter and John, going up to the temple. Uh, by the way, going up is the word, the, the verb there is present tense, so continually going up to the temple, meaning they were doing this every day. This is like a normal rhythm. Um, going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So here we find Peter and John, they're together, doing something daily. Again, they're going to the temple every single day. And we know they did this, right? We even saw back in chapter 2, verse 46, that they were, they were doing this. They were going to the temple. 
And you might think that Peter and John are just doing some maybe um, religious duty, right? They're kind of checking off the boxes. They're going to the temple because that's what they're supposed to do. Um, But this is probably because we fail to understand the role of the temple, okay? It was an important piece there. These guys were entering into, Peter and John, into the mission field. They went to the temple. Notice, again, the language is important here. They went to the temple at the hour of prayer, not for the hour of prayer, okay? They went there at a very specific time for a very specific purpose. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's the ninth hour, as it says here. And this, was a, this would have been when all the people, most people would have been there, for example, all right? It, uh, consider it rush hour, temple hours, okay? It's rush hour at the temple. Everybody's there because it's the hour of prayer, so everyone needs to show up, and everyone needs to come, and they need to pray. So we find them here, and it wasn't just because it was the, only, the religious center of the day, but the temple was also a social and economic center of the day. So this place is teeming with unbelievers everywhere, and Peter and John make a very deliberate decision to go to the temple at that time of day on a continual basis, on a daily basis. So it was no accident. It wasn't coincidence. They were on a deliberate mission. Now, because they did this every day, no doubt, uh, they knew most of the people there by name, right? They frequented the same place over and over. Uh, again, they didn't stay cooped up in a building, you know, doing activities. They went out, and they were together on mission together. They were present. They were available. They were known by the community, okay? This is all part of the practice, and we'll see this not just here, but we'll see this continually, this model throughout the book of Acts. And so let's get, get practical here for this one. You need to be known uh, Pastor Jared was praying this. We were praying, praying for, for those who don't know Christ, right? You should be known by people outside of your own family and outside of your own Christian friends. Okay? You should be known by someone outside. I'm not saying no, don't. These aren't important. These, are, these two are very important. I don't know why I'm counting like this today. Two. Um, so we're, we, got, we got family members and we got our, our Christian friends and family. There needs to be another third party there. We need to be known by people outside of that circle. We should be known by them. You have to break out of the kind of the Christian bubble, as it were. And this is done by frequenting the same places over and over, looking, um, looking to be intentional, building relationships with new people. You know this by yourself, right? People are, uh, are, are creatures of habit. They tend to develop habits of going to the same places, right? Same shops, same stores, generally probably at the same time. Um, they, they develop some habits of of doing that, and we should develop habits of being out in the world, frequent the same places, starting to say, say hi to people, learn their name, like very simple stuff here, but just learning to frequent places to get to know people outside of that little bubble that you may find yourself in. And maybe it would be helpful if we're to think about mission or think about evangelism, whatever word you want to put into that, um, think about it as neighboring. That may be a good way to put it, right? Neighboring. We can call it gospel neighboring will be a good way to describe it. We should be gospel neighboring getting to know people um, who don't know Christ and being a, being a neighbor to them. The reason we don't have many gospel conversations with people is because, honestly, we just don't do a lot of gospel neighboring. Um, use what you like to do to get to know people uh, who don't know, know Jesus, right? Again, I'm going to be very practical today, so just stick with me. You like to play pickleball? Then join people who play pickleball, right? Join a group who plays pickleball. You like to game? Join, join people who like to game. You like to knit or... I think it's called crocheting, I think is the word there. Um, then join a club, I'm, I'm sure they have them. Who knit and crochet? You probably are like, Chris, how do you not know this? I don't, sorry. Um, but, I mean, find a group to join, right? And do it with people that don't know Jesus. Don't join a church group that does that. Maybe grab people from your church to join a group that does those things. Find those interests that you have and begin to know, get to know people outside of the circles that you're in. 
This is the, the call today is going to be to step out of your comfort zone, guys. It's going to be to, to, begin, to take some deliberate steps to begin to build relationships with people outside of the circles that you find yourself in. Listen, what Peter and John are doing here is exactly what Jesus did and what he told them to do. Listen, John 17, 18. As he, this is uh, Jesus' prayer to the Father. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Right there. So Jesus came in. Let's think about that. We call this uh, incarnation, okay? He came into the world, and he didn't come in and, like, you know, stay up on top of a mountaintop and preach down to people kind of thing and stay distant. He didn't commute from heaven to earth each day, you know, and come back the next day to teach and go back to heaven. And I mean, he lived among us, right? He rubbed shoulders with us. He was on the ground, right? He was working with people. He was getting to know people. This is how he did it. This is how we're sent. Uh, John 20, verse 21, Jesus speaks to the disciples. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So as you've seen me sent, okay, so you are sent in the same way. So you followed me, you saw me, now go do it, right? This is discipleship. This is why, for example, why we took time to, to kind of highlight passages in the book of Matthew before we got into Acts. Because I wanted you to see not just what Jesus taught, right, what he said, I wanted you to kind of catch what he did. Because that's what he does with the disciples, right? He spends three years with them, and at the very end he says, okay, as you've seen me, you've seen what I've done, now you go do that the same way, right? You duplicate that. And so that's, that's why we did that. Uh, David uh, Philbeck, uh, author, said this. He said, the Bible is the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. A lot of words there. But that's, that's really a good summary of the whole Bible. Right? It, is a, it is a book on mission. It's an active book. It's a moving book. Um, if, you, if you know and love Jesus, then you are, you are what, what they are, the, the apostles. They are called sent ones. It's exactly what we are. Jesus brings you in to send you out. I told you this before, but you can go through every main character you know, in the Old Testament. You know, Abraham was brought in. He was saved. He was sent out to go to a land in which I will tell you, right? Move. Get going. Moses was brought in, right? Meets, meets God at the burning bush. And what does God, God do? Brings him in, and what does he do? He sends him out. Go. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. Lead the people out of Israel, right? Joshua, same thing, right? Joshua, all right, Moses is dead. My servant's dead. Now, now, you, now you're up. Go lead the people into the promised land. Um, Isaiah in the temple, when he sees, he comes face to face with God in the temple. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Uh, you may be familiar with that one. He gets in there, he sees God, he thinks he's going to die. He says, woe is me, right? I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't do this. And he hears a voice say, who will go for me? And what does Isaiah go? He goes, oh, send me, I'll, I'll go. And God goes, okay. Off he goes, right? <laughs> Off he goes. Peter on the boat, he meets, he's with Jesus. And that's, that's that story where, where he... Um, Peter's not catching anything, and Jesus says, hey, cast it down the other side. And I'm sure Peter, as a fisherman, is like, seriously, like, I, I do this for a living. I think I know how to do this. And he goes, okay, fine, I'll do it. Throws him down the other side of the boat, and he pulls in so many fish that the boat begins to sink. And in that story, it's Luke chapter 4, where you see Peter falls down on his knees and says, depart from me, for I'm a wicked man. He, he understood that he had come face to face with God. And you know what Jesus said to him? It's okay, get up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right? So you see that. Every person is brought in and they're sent out. They're brought in and they're sent out. That's the rhythm we find throughout the scriptures, and that's exactly what we see here happening in the book of Acts. So in the Gospels, the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus to empower him for mission. In the book of Acts, the Spirit of God comes upon the church to empower them for mission. The same Spirit comes upon Parkside Bible Church to empower us for mission. Right? It's the same model, same thing happening 
throughout the generations. God saves you to send you out, okay? You see, um, and we talk about this, being, being missional. And what does that word mean? Because that's a word you may not be familiar with. Well, take the A-L off the end, and you end up with mission, right? It's a lifestyle. It's a philosophy. It's an approach to life. It's the, it, it, we believe it's the kind of central part of what we do. And we talk about our philosophy of ministry here, and we talk about each of those four elements, and we get to those. You see those kind of around the banners around the side. We delight in the gospel. We grow through relationships. We serve our community. But sending into the world is the point of those three. They all are to lead to that. If they don't lead to that, then we're failing, okay? That, it's all supposed to lead to that. That's the central thing we're after. Um, it's a very, very kind of essence of it. So it's simply living out the life uh, the way Jesus lived out his life as a missionary. Peter and Paul, sorry, Peter and John here are missionaries as well as the rest of the church. And the first step was literally simple, right? It's just moving their feet. They just went into a public space very deliberately at a very specific time on a, on a consistent basis over and over to meet new people so they can talk about Jesus, so we can serve those people. That's what they did. It's really simple, right? If you think about what about Bob, right? Baby steps. Baby steps to the temple. Baby steps to the beautiful gate. Whatever. It's, it's baby steps. Just, just take little steps, right? I mean, sometimes you think, okay, I just got to be a missionary. I'm just going to sell everything I have. I'm going overseas. Great. If that's what God calls you to do, please do that. But there's a lot of steps in between that of just taking those little baby steps of just getting to know new people, stepping outside your comfort zone, and moving your feet. All right, number one. Number two, open our eyes. All right, so here we are. Number, verse two. That was just verse one. Won't go too long. All right. Verse two. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. It's called the beautiful gate to ask alms. That's the asking for offering, asking for money, basically, uh, of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go to the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. All right. So here we're introduced to a, to a man who is unable to walk from birth, never walked in his life. It's margin, and he would be considered a marginalized man in that society because of that ailment that he, that he had. Um, they didn't care much for him. He did have, though, a few friends, it seems like, who would daily, it says, take him to this gate and sit him there to kind of hope he would get some money to be able to take care of himself. And so we find that uh, he's put next to this beautiful gate. It was the most exquisite gate of, uh, they had at the temple. It was made of Corinthian bronze, okay? So it was a really hefty uh, gate. Some historians said it took 20 guys to close the gate, right? I mean, that's how heavy this thing was, a very thick, heavy, beautiful, kind of shiny gate. And it was the main entry now into the court of the Israelites, uh, when Luke talks about going into the temple here, he's talking about the temple proper. There was multiple layers. Kind of think of like a, an onion here as we get tighter into the middle. There's lots of layers to the temple and very specific rules about who could go into certain parts. So the outside was the court of the Gentiles, meaning anybody could get into that area. Next gate, central circle, was going to be the court of the women, meaning any Jewish woman or Jewish male could enter that space. But if you were a Gentile, meaning non-Jew, you couldn't get in. The next gate, next circle, was the court of the men. Okay, this is where only Jewish men could go into that circle. And then, out, and then even further inside was the court of the priests, where only the priests could go. And then there's an even deeper circle inside the temple, right, where the, only the high priest could go once a year. It's called the Holy of Holies. So like an onion, it kind of gets different layers go all the way in. In fact, there's about a, I'm going to show you, it's about a 45-second video here to kind of get, get an image. They've recreated uh, kind of what it would have looked like when, say, Jesus walked into the temple for the first time, same as these guys. You'll kind of see this. Go ahead. On entering the temple mount, he would move upwards through a series of courts or open spaces. 
The idea there's there's a whole I mean that, that whole inner space right so different layers of it is what they would have would have gotten so at that beautiful gate and because this guy was lame from birth he was not allowed because he wasn't considered ritually pure to be able to go into that space that's why he's outside the gate sitting there but here's the thing he's a he's a very very strategic location because all the men had to go in through that gate right so he's sitting right there kind of like in some ways if you go downtown you see someone at, you know at a stop if you go to the same route to work maybe downtown, you see the same person a lot of times at a stoplight, right? Um, they're asking for money or asking for help. This is what this guy did. He's, this is his spot, right? This is his area. He's got this, got this thing down. And he was, he was in a prime location because the Jewish men wanted to look good for God, right? So they're going in, not just how they dressed, you know? It's like they, they want to get in. Like, well, here's a good opportunity to kind of score some points with God. This is how they thought, you know? <laughs> I give this guy a little bit of money, so maybe it'll help him out, and this will kind of score me some points. So this is what they would do. Matter of fact, one Jewish writing, um, a his, histor historical writing, said this, quote, for almsgiving, that's giving of money to the poor, delivers from death. It keeps you from going into the darkness. Almsgiving, for all who practice it, is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. So they, they viewed it as almost a salvation thing, Right? You give to this guy, man, this is going to shave off some sins maybe. This will kind of get me a little closer to God. I mean, they had a, a whole understanding of the gospel that was completely backwards and wrong. And so notice this guy's placed there daily. And that daily, Peter and John went, went by this spot. That's the idea of the language. So he, they're there every day, maybe every week. They've been there for weeks, maybe months, going to the same spot. This guy was not a new face. They probably knew him by name. And we have every reason to believe that Peter and John, again, may have been having gospel conversations with this guy along the way over these periods of weeks or months that he, they would have seen him each day. And so the question I ask as I read this is like, so why didn't they heal him before now? If the language is that they've been seeing this guy over and over again, like why wait till this, this moment to actually do it? And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the dominant themes of the book of Acts, which really makes us a little uncomfortable is like, you know, uh, conservative Christian circles um, in some ways is like there's a deep reliance upon the movement of the Spirit of God, right, um, to, to move them in, in certain ways, right? This is, even though the Spirit is not mentioned here, the, the, uh, the Spirit of God's work is, work is not only to heal this guy, as we'll see in a minute, but to move these two disciples to actually care for him and do this. So why now? Honestly, because it was God's timing. <laughs> it's when God wanted it to happen. Just like, remember we talked about the 120 they, were, they, were, they saw Jesus you know, take off like a rocket into the sky. He ascends and, and tells them, hey, Spirit of God's going to come and you're going to be given power and you're going to preach the gospel to the world. Ten days go by and they're just in a room sitting there twiddling their thumbs going like, all right, well, I guess we'll pray and we'll study the Bible. And um, I don't know what we're waiting for, God, but we'll just sit here and wait. Remember, they, they waited all that time. But remember, we talked about that in chapter two. They waited those ten days because that tenth day was Pentecost. That's when all the people would show up, right? It's when all the people would be there. So it was the Spirit of God's timing at that moment, just like it is here. 
Again, they have no doubt, uh, they remain faithful to, to go to the same places over and over, talking no doubt with the same people, waiting for the Spirit of God to open doors for them. That's what they were doing. They had passed by me weeks, uh, days, maybe months, um, and here they, they felt moved by the Spirit of God to heal this man at this moment. But notice something. They weren't passively waiting in a room, praying for an opportunity, okay? Oh, God, give us an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Give us an opportunity to serve people who don't know Jesus, right? They, they, they may have done that, but they didn't stay there, right? They moved out. They were on the move. They were out in the world with eyes open to what Jesus might have them do, okay? And we see this later on in the book of Acts, chapter 14, Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, right? They were all excited that God's opened up these doors. He's opened up opportunities, but they were out in public, out getting to know people. Colossians 4, Paul would give some instructions on this. He put it this way. He said, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I I am in prison. Then I might make it clear, uh, which is how I ought to speak. And then he tells them, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, speech always be gracious, because it's seasoned with, seasoned, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's exactly what Peter and John are doing, right? They're, they're making the best use of the time that God has given to them. They're actively waiting, maybe a good way to put it. They're actively waiting on the Spirit of God. All right, we're out there, we're moving, our feet are moving. And our eyes are open, give us opportunities, God, right? Open up those doors. Um, now, even the, the salt metaphor that uh, Paul uses here in Colossians 4 uh, assumes that they are, they are engaging people, right? They're, they're close to them, right? They aren't la- launching salt missiles from like, you know, 800 feet away, right? They're, <laughs> they're sprinkling salt right in front of them. That's how you sprinkle salt, by the way. You don't throw salt missiles. That just came to mind just now. That probably makes no sense, but yeah, it just hit me. All right, Spirit of God moving. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so... So, but, but this is what they were doing. They were close. They were build, building these relationships. Again, it assumes, he, Paul assumes that the, the Colossian people, the Colossian church, was engaging unbelieving people. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense to say, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders if you didn't have outsiders that you even knew, right? And so we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit while on mission. But we also have to be on mission with our eyes open, praying for those open doors. And I, I guarantee you, if you get your feet moving, you start to liberally try to build relationships, get to know people outside of your normal circle, and you pray this prayer. You say, God, open up a door for me. I can tell you what, that prayer will go answered. God will open up some doors. He will open up some opportunities for you. Just have your eyes open and be ready, right, in those ways. The Spirit's always actively at work. Think about this. Always actively at work in you and always actively at work in the people around you who don't know Christ working in them. I remember that. As an unbeliever, I look back on my life before I came to Christ at 18, and though I had no concept of God and no, no, no thought of God or even desire for God, I can look back and go, oh yeah, I saw this person God put in my life and this person God had put in my life and this situation God put in my life. I can look back and see the hands of God working, though at the time I didn't see it, right? So God's always at work in you and he's always at work in the people around you for you to talk to, right? And so this is what we find. We'll see this throughout the book of Acts. We'll see later in Acts, uh, the Spirit's going to move Philip to talk to a man from Ethiopia in chapter 8. He'll move Paul to follow guys to Caesarea in chapter 11. The Spirit will move Paul and Barnabas to go to Cyprus in chapter 13. The Spirit will move Timothy and Paul and Silas to stay put in chapter 16 for a very special purpose there, as we'll see later about an earthquake and a jailer and all this. You'll see how the Spirit of God will move Paul to Macedonia in chapter 19, 
Jerusalem in chapter 20, eventually all the way to Rome, right? The Spirit of God is just moving them to specific locations at specific times to meet specific people, uh, and their eyes are open, right? And they're on the move. So the same Spirit's moving in our hearts today. Remind us of what Jesus has done for us, leading us on mission to work for and proclaim his gospel. Listen, many times, I know this feeling, you, you just want a checklist from God, right? Give me the checklist, all right? I just, I just want to go through the checklist, take my Christian responsibilities and make sure I get those done, and then whew, I'm good. This, little, this is a little uncomfortable, this whole living by the Spirit thing, right? Like following, okay, God, I'm going to move, I'm going to pray, for, I'm going to pray, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to open the doors, and I'm going to try to meet, uh, meet new people who don't know you. Help me out here. Okay, there we go. All right, we're going to move out. I'm going to depend on the Spirit of God to bring new people and to open my mouth and to build those relationships. And it's, it's a little bit, um, it's not a checklist, right? There's not, not, not a magic formula for that. Um, but it's important that we do, we pray with our eyes open, willing to speak and serve as the Spirit opens doors. There are, I mean, there's, there's reasons why there's passages like this. Listen, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, right? Colossians 4.20 says, don't tell us not to grieve the Spirit of God, whom we're sealed with the day of redemption. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, don't quench the Spirit, right? There's a movement. There's a, there's a movement of the Spirit. And I, I think you, if you're a follower of Christ, you felt this. God moving you, you need to, go, you need to get, get out of your comfort zone, right? You need, to, you need to move outside of the circle, maybe the bubble that you're in. You need to get to know some people. And the Spirit of God's working on you, and you felt that, and you've resisted that, and what you've done is literally quench the Spirit of God's work in your life, right? Don't quench the Spirit. It's moving in you for the sake of other people, um, listen, Peter and James aren't walking around, right, in, in this kind of thing, holding signs up and all that stuff. I mean, they're just, it's simple here, guys. They're, they're simply moving their feet, and they're opening their eyes and praying for God to open doors, and God's doing it. Building those relationships, and they're, and they're meeting needs and ready to move as the Spirit leads them. We need to be ready to be used by the Spirit on a daily basis, right? Just begin your day praying, God, open up doors, move my feet, get me out of my comfort zone, Help me to begin to meet new people. Number, lastly, number three, use our hands. Okay, now we're back to this man. Okay, we're back to this guy at the gate. Remember, he's sitting there. He's looked up. Peter and John are there. They told him to look at him. And so there they are, and he's got his hand extended. He's probably expecting, you know, if he's got like a little can or something, or he's expecting the, maybe the clanking of coins into his can, like everyone else has done that day. But instead, he hears this, verse six. Peter said, I have no silver. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have that's important. That's such a good old part there. What I do have, I give to you. This is what I got. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So Peter and John um, say this. When they say this to him, they're not lying. They're not saying, you know, they really had pockets full of money or something. They were poor church planters. I know what that was like. They didn't have, any, they didn't have a lot of money. Um, but they were looking at meeting the needs of this guy at a deeper level than what he was asking and even though, even though they may not, have, may not have had the money, they did have other things that Jesus gave to them, like this ability to heal people. And even in healing, this is interesting, even healing, Peter enables this man to, to live and take care of himself, right? He restored the man to dignity and worth with the ability to work, right? He's, he's actually an answering his request without the way he thought it would be. Verse 7, he took him by the right hand, raised him up, meaning his feet and ankles were made strong. Can you just imagine that for a moment? This guy, is, he's seen people walk his whole life. He's had people carry him. He's seen how legs are supposed to work. His has never worked. He's never walked in his life. And all of a sudden, like ankles, everything just kind of comes together. And he, can you imagine that first step? We're going to see in a minute why this guy was like 
jumping around like crazy. Like he was getting, using the new legs that he has, right? This is an amazing moment. And so we find this. Peter, Peter is gospel neighboring, no doubt gospel proclaiming. This is probably the first time this guy has heard about Jesus from Peter. And we'll see in chapter 4, he's going he's gonna to teach uh, about Jesus. Peter's going to preach again there. And uh, it probably had many conversations over the last few weeks or months. And when Peter heals this guy, he gives a clear sign of the power of God. He's doing the same works that Jesus did. That's why in chapter 4, verse 13, it says they recognized them that they had been with Jesus. Right? They recognized him. Like, oh, this is what Jesus did. Okay. Now, let me pause there and say this for a second. Now, I, it would be a very cool thing, very honestly, a very awesome thing, if we had the ability to heal, right? It'd be all over Indianapolis, we'd set up shop outside the Riley's Children's Hospital, right? This is what I would do. I mean, the, 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 if we had this ability, we don't necessarily have that ability today and have that gift as far as I can tell. You know, can God still heal people? Absolutely. Can he still use people as a means? Sure. But I, I think the extraordinary gift to heal people seems to have diminished even throughout the New Testament, even throughout church history. Even Paul seems to have kind of diminished in that gift as later on we'll find Timothy and Epaphroditus, two guys that get sick and almost die, but Paul doesn't heal them in that way. So the gift seemed to, seemed to verify a message uh, that was being proclaimed for the first time, kind of authenticate the messengers, show the, that they had been with Jesus kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that God can't still bestow the gift if and when he chooses in that way. Now, while we may not be able to walk around healing people at will, um, we do have, and here's important, what I do have, I give to you, focus on that part. What do you have that you can give to someone else? What gifts and abilities and talents has God given you that you can give? Okay, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're looking for here. Each of you have been equipped and made by God with certain abilities, interests, and talents. Maybe you have money and things to help give to people. Maybe you, maybe you don't have much money, but you have time and you have talent that you can share. Maybe, maybe you're, just, you're just a good listener, right? And you just need to, to, to listen to people. A lot of times gospel neighboring comes by simply opening our ears and shutting our mouth and just listening to the pain and the hurts and the sorrows of, of the world, right? And hearing what they're going through so that we can build those bridges for the sake of the gospel, build that empathy in that way. So how are you using your talents, your gifts, your interests, even your hobbies, to get to know people outside of maybe the Christian bubble you find yourself in. You know, when you, when you first come to Jesus, it's like, man, you're, you've got all these people who don't know Christ. And you're like, I remember this when we became a Christian. Like, I wouldn't shut up. Like, I really, I annoyed my friends greatly. Um, but you know, you're just all excited. And then after a while, you've been to church for a long time. You, you start building relationships with the church, which is good, excellent. But you slowly start, if you're not intentional and if you don't get pushed on this, you stop kind of building those relationships with people outside, Right? it's very easy to kind of get comfortable and kind of get inside that bubble. So how, how are you gospel neighboring people? There are needs all around you. How are you meeting them with what Jesus has given to you? Now notice one more thing here. I've said in these, these three points that we are to move our feet, we're to open up our eyes, we're to use our hands. Um, you know, we saw last week the early church was a church on mission together. They were always together. And look what happens in verse 8. Leaping up, he stood, began to walk, entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This guy has got his new legs, right? I don't know if he's doing the Irish River dance or what he's doing, but he's, he's just trying them out, man. He is moving those feet. And this is all part of the sign of Jesus coming, right? Isaiah 35, 6. The lame, says, uh, the lame man shall leap like a deer. It's exactly what's happening. This is being fulfilled right here in this moment uh, with uh, Peter and John. 
And amazingly, this guy gets to walk into the temple now. And he'd always been shut out. He'd never even been allowed in, much less walk. He couldn't even get into this space. So now he's entering into part of society, the social part too. And notice, the, again, Peter and John are with, the, the, he's with them. They're doing this together. Peter and John were not afraid to identify with him. I mean, this guy, he even invades kind of their personal space. In verse 11, we kind of find the, even the word used there is, that, is a word used for arresting somebody. Like, this guy arrested Peter and John, right? Get the idea? They t- almost, he tackled them. He was all excited about what he had experienced. And so in many ways, uh, Peter and John befriended this guy. Discipleship has begun. We don't know yet, and this story doesn't give us ideas. Has this guy come to know Jesus yet? Has he? We don't know. Will he? We don't know. I mean, it doesn't give clarification on that. But what we do know is that Peter and John have begun to build that relationship, right? And I would say this. Discipleship has started even though this guy may not have even come to know Jesus yet, okay? Sometimes you think discipleship is a post-Christian activity, right? I mean, a post-conversion activity, sorry. A post-conversion activity, Right? It's like, okay, you come to Jesus, now you get discipled. Right? You get taught by, about Jesus, you get, you get shown how to live like Jesus, right? you know, all those things, which is super important. But let's not forget, discipleship happens before conversion as well. Remember the Gospel of Matthew 28, Jesus told them, go and what? Make disciples? How do you make a disciple? <laughs> you spend time, you, you disciple them into the Gospel, just like when you become a Christian, you still get discipled into the Gospel, right? You've come to know Christ and now you understand it. But you're being discipled into it. That's what they're doing. They're discipling this this guy into the gospel. And so remember, Jesus spent time with 12 guys, remember, who didn't even believe in him for most of the time, and one who never did believe in him. Remember Judas. And so he, he, he discipled them. That's what Jesus did even though they didn't know him in that way. He gave instruction to them. He, he was involved with them. He answered their questions. He invested his life into them until they came to know him, and then they were sent out to repeat the process, and that's what they're doing. Again, it's all pretty simple, this gospel neighboring idea, right? Moving our feet, opening our eyes, using our hands, whatever gifts, talents we have, and doing it all together as a church. So where does the power come from all this? How do you, how do you move out on this one? And I think it's a, a good analogy to take a look at this guy a little bit closer for us. He's a perfect analogy of what it was like for us before we came to Christ, right? You remember that moment in your life, you remember back at that time when you didn't know Christ, it's a, it's a perfect analogy, right? We were stuck, helpless in our sin. We sat in the world, as it were, begging, trying to get people to help us, serve us, love us, care for us. And the more we begged, the more maybe we got rejected, the deeper we found ourselves stuck uh, and willing to try anything to get out of the situation we found ourselves in. And then one day Jesus came along, just like Peter, just like John here, uh, seeing a stuck in sin, stuck in our rejection. And even, I love this, even when, when, uh, when you came to him, you didn't even know what to ask for, right? What, what you asked for is so minimal to what Jesus wants to give to you, right? You asked him maybe to fix you up, patch you up, right? Instead, what did he do? When you came to him, he actually made you completely new, right? Gave you a new heart, a new life. You asked him to help you out, maybe give you a, give you a hand, pick you up. Instead, he gave you a whole new life. He gave you a spirit to reside in, in you. You asked him to, to be kind to you, and instead, he, he, he didn't just get kind to you, right? He, he loved you even to death on a cross. And just like this man, you didn't even want to necessarily get healed. You just wanted a little money, right? Just wanted a little help. You didn't even ask for it. Jesus took the initiative, just like Peter and John did. And by sovereign grace, you were, as, a, as the 3,000 were, they were added, right? You were brought in. But like this man who was lame, you had to respond to the challenge given. Jesus told you to die to yourself. He told you to take up your cross and follow him. And here's, here's the thing. 
when you went all in on Jesus, and it wasn't easy, right? If you remember back to your story, when you went all in on Jesus, it was a tough decision, but you leapt for joy, just like this guy did, because you got a new life, you got a new start, you got, you got a new heart. And Jesus has done more than you ever thought he would, even though it was painful at times. Coming to Jesus doesn't always make life easier, by the way, right? Sometimes it actually makes it a little bit harder, but it's worth it. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. The same is true for you as a follower of Jesus who needs to get on mission. It's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to, take, it's going to involve risks. It's going to comprise a lot of sacrifice, and it may even include a lot of failure. That's okay. That's all part of that process to start gospel neighboring and gospel proclaiming to people. Are you willing to take that risk? Are you willing today to move out of your comfort zone and look at the cross and go, yeah, you know what, I'm, I see what Jesus did. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to, to be rejected. I'm willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm willing to move out and have conversations I really don't feel comfortable having, right? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to reorient your life around the mission of Jesus? So that becomes central to your life. So what you do, how you make decisions, where you move to, what job you get, all those things revolve around, okay, the mission of Jesus. Like how, how, does this, how do I advance the gospel through this decision? Keep in mind, Jesus is working on you. He wants to use you. And anything worth doing, it's gonna involve suffering, it's gonna involve sacrifice, it's gonna involve tough decisions. And Jesus is worth following on mission. He's worth stepping out of your comfort zone. He's worth breaking out of the Christian bubble you find yourself in. There's no greater joy than being used by Jesus in the lives of people who don't yet know him. If you've done that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a great joy. Jesus is at work. He's building something in this church. He's building something in you individually. And we don't even understand how great in things that he's doing. I end this with this quote here from C.S. Lewis. No, I know, not shocking. I know, I know. But he said this. Imagine yourself. You're living in a house. You ask God to make some repairs. At first, you know, make some repairs. Just fix some things up for me. At first, he's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace, putting up staircases, Right? putting up roofs. I mean, this is, he's building something bigger than you can imagine. Can you imagine that? Can you dream bigger than what is in front of you? That God can use us as a church to see more and more people come to know him? That's the vision. That's the goal. That's why we're in Acts. That's why we're talking about a church on mission. Right? That's our goal. We're going to take communion in a minute here. We're going to do it a little bit differently today. Shake things up for you. So if you like the, the ritual and, and the checklist, I'm sorry, I'm going to shake it up for you today. What we're going to do is we're still going to have some quiet time here in a minute. I always want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what maybe God has said to you personally through the passage for you to spend some time praying and talking to God. Maybe if you have to repent and confess some sin, great. If you need to lay some burdens down before God, do it. This is your opportunity. We want you to give the opportunity for those who are followers of Christ. Okay? If you're not a follower of Christ, this is an opportunity for you to, to, to cry out to God. opportunity to come to Christ. We'd love to answer questions you may have. But for those who are followers of Jesus, there's little cups there in the pews. It's got bread, it's got juice in it. You're going to take that. Don't open it yet, okay? Don't do it. Resist the temptation, okay? Don't open it. Hold it. And we're going to actually, Pastor Jared's going to come up here in just a few minutes after we have some quiet time, and he's going to lead us to take it together. It's one of the things that beautiful about, sometimes communion can be very individualized, and that's good, and we do a lot of individualized focus on it. But I want to do it more corporately. There's an important aspect that we do this together. That's what we see in the book of Acts. They did this together. We're going to do 
this Sunday, going to communion together, all right? So Pastor Jared will lead us in that in just a few minutes. Let me pray. We'll have our quiet time to reflect on what God has done. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for this passage. Um, Lord, it's, it's good to be pushed. It's good to be reminded that, God, we can so easily settle into a comfort zone. It's so easy to just do that take-it-easy mentality, that cultural mindset of just, just, just resist taking risks, um, not step out of our comfort zone. But, God, you want us to move. You've called us to move. Um, we've been given... Uh, the gospel. We have been changed from the inside out. And God, you call us to move, move out and let other people know about it and to serve them and love them and care for them. And God, I just pray you would corporately move us together as a church. As Parkside Bible Church, you'd move us out. Um, and God, open up doors for us as we do move. And give us that courage to take the risks. God, and in light of what you've done, in light of the cross you bore for us, the death that you died, God, we have all the motivation in the world to move out. In Jesus' name, amen.